The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by CAC, Certified Acceptance Corporation. Folks, it's true. CAC coins bring premium prices when offered for sale in the coin market. We at Coin Week have followed the market closely for years, and there's no question that many of the finest coins that you'll see offered for sale carry a green bean. CAC values originality, eye appeal, and technical merit. You value your coins, so doesn't it make sense to trust the brand that so many serious collectors put their trust in? To learn more, visit CACcoin.com. This week on the Coin Week podcast, Kitco's Director of Global Trading, Peter Hug, joins us. Peter has been at the forefront of everything involving silver and gold since 1974. A pioneer in the industry, Peter is one of the leading experts concerning precious metals and has the knowledge necessary to answer many of the toughest questions we have about investing in this area of the market. We talk about metals, Generation X, Bitcoin, counterfeit coins, and marketing BS next on the Coin Week Podcast. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week podcast. It's a pleasure, Charles. So, Peter, you're a legendary figure in the precious metals market. You've been involved in this business since 1974. You often make calls about the softness or the strength of the precious metals market on Kitco. And you certainly have a depth and breadth of knowledge about metals that would be invaluable for anyone from somebody trying to put together a massive portfolio of gold and silver holdings. Or even, you know, your casual stacker who's just putting away a little bit of uh, money each and every month in a precious metals coin. It's my opinion that we find ourselves in a weird moment in history. We have what appears to be a fairly strong economy, but it's also a time that is marked with uh, what I would call, for lack of a better phrase, looming volatility. And that comes in the form of uh, the unwinding of long-held uh, trade agreements amongst the globe's leading trading partners. You know, with the current U.S. administration, I think it's safe to say that even the core relationships between the United States and some of its traditional allies are being considered anew. Uh, You know, this is certainly true with the U.S. and Europe and also with the U.S. and its NAFTA trading partners, Canada and Mexico. So given the fact that traditionally metals have served as a hedge against volatility brought about by government and central bank behavior, I find it interesting to see how gold and silver isn't really reacting uh, as I would expect to what's going on right now. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, I mean, we've had uh, instances uh, over the, uh, you know, since gold became uh, a free trading commodity back in the early 70s, certainly have had instances uh, uh, that, that would create the same type of uh, angst and, and, and worry for investors. I mean, back in 79.80, we had inflation running at 16%. Uh, we had the, SM, uh, the SNL collapse in '87. We had the recession in '92. We had the, you know, the dot-com bubble in uh, 2000, and obviously we had the uh, the major issue in 2008, which uh, catapulted gold to uh, $1,925 uh, by uh, 2011. Uh, in today's environment, uh, there's enough to be scared about uh, to, uh, to generate. Uh, a logical argument that gold should form uh, a portion of your portfolio. Um, you know, the extent of how much you want to be exposed to gold and, and your reasoning or your uh, your motivation behind why you want to own gold, uh, you know, it, it really is uh, uh, sort of an individual uh, an individual circumspection where, they, where you really have to understand what the motivation is as to why you're buying gold. Are you buying it for capital gains or... Are you buying it because you think the fiat system is going to collapse? Uh, are you uh, buying it as a hedge against your uh, portfolio, the balance of your portfolio? And, you know, depending on how you answer those questions, uh, Charles uh, will determine what the best vehicles are uh, for you to be involved in the gold market. Would you say that the economic foundation of the major global economies has improved dramatically since the Great Recession? which, you know, within just a few years of that market collapse, we saw not necessarily historic highs, but highs in gold and silver that we haven't seen since the second year of Obama's first term in office. Well, I mean, 
including the fact that, that we are going to run into other financial issues uh, in the future. It's just the nature of, uh, of, of the markets. I mean, if you compare us today to, when I say us, we'll compare the U.S. economy today to where it was in 2000, uh, 2008. Uh, I mean, if you look at the capital structures of the banks, they're considerably stronger than they were then. Uh, obviously, unemployment is at uh, multi-30-year uh, lows. Um, interest rates are starting to normalize. Um, the growth rates uh, don't know if 4% can be sustained on the second, uh, second quarter GDP number 4.1. I don't know if that will be sustainable through the balance of the year. But overall, if you look at the economic picture, um, barring any unforeseen consequences from these uh, from these trade uh, negotiations, uh, looks considerably healthier than it did in 2008. Uh, so in that context, uh, it, we've made some progress. Now, on, on the front of the budget deficits and things, they've gotten worse. Uh, and they, I believe, will continue to get worse, especially as baby boomers. Uh, there's, I think, 11,000 or 12,000 a day that are retiring, and that's expected to continue for the next 10 years. That's going to put a major um, uh, drag on the uh, the uh, the budget, and so I don't see any relief in the budget deficits uh, for the foreseeable future. However. U.S. budget deficits relative uh, their uh, U.S. GDP compared to European budget deficits compared to their GDP, especially if you look at countries like Italy, Portugal, Spain, we are still much healthier than they are. Uh, although the trajectory and the path is is uh, is suggesting that somewhere down the road we're going to have another financial issue. Now, whether that's a severe recession or uh, something similar to 2008 uh, is yet to unfold, but. Uh, Everything works in cycles, and uh, right now I think we're in an up cycle, and I think that cycle's probably still got a couple of years of legs left in it. I wonder sometimes, and again, you know, I'm an avid consumer of media, and it seems that fear is a major focus of the pitch that you often hear when precious metals investing is being uh, promoted to the general public. You know, going back to the, the 30s, you know, the United States suffered this great trauma you know, through its Great Depression, and then immediately followed that with World War II. And so when Franklin Roosevelt issued an executive order to recall gold, it was a shock to the system. And in that shock is your evergreen sales pitch, you know. You know, if you're one looking to use fear of the government as a method to entice people to buy gold, you need look no further than the executive order uh, Franklin Roosevelt signed in 1933. And you saw that used over and over again when the Democrats held power from 2008 to 2010. Again, you had a, a major market collapse. You had a lot of anxiety, economic anxiety, which essentially began after 9-11. You know, metals were on a surge after that. And then you had, you know, the fear that the Democratic government would, you know, create a, a series of policies which would like devalue the dollar dramatically and and the only safe haven was, was things like precious metals. You know, of course, it's easy to entice people to believe that when their homes lose an extraordinary amount of value, which is what was happening. But I haven't heard the same approach used, at least not so often, now that the Republicans control all three branches of the U.S. government and President Trump is in office. As far as I can tell, government spending is still profligate. The national debt is still ballooning at a record rate. Our aging population is still putting a tremendous burden on our entitlement programs. But that sense of alarm and worry seems absent now. Amazingly, and uh, you know, I don't want to call out the publication, but one hobby publication in the U.S. in April of this year published a lead story that put forward a theory that you know, Donald Trump might actually institute a new gold standard, which was complete and total journalistic malpractice. There's nothing even remotely suggesting that would be the case. But again, it seems like this fear tactic works when, you know, right-wing governments aren't in power and then goes away when right-wing governments come into power, even though at the end of the day, when you look at the bottom line, the government's still out of control. You know, I, all I can base, uh, base this comment on is, is just my direct experience, and I am not going to mention names, uh, but the names are... Uh, the same names that have been preaching fear for the past 10 or 15 years. Um, uh, 
and uh, when you know I've been at a variety of conferences over the past year, and and and, and the same individuals get up and uh, when they preach about gold, and they preach about gold at 1900, and at 1500, and at 1400, and then at 1200, and they saying uh, you know gold's going to five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars an ounce, and they give their economic arguments. Uh, of the budget deficits and uh, the corruption in uh, the U.S. government and the uh, uh, the, um, the collapse of the financial system, which is uh, which is inevitable, uh, they're still on the podiums speaking. Um, uh, you just need to go to a Freedom Fest uh, conference, and uh, you'll see uh, exactly uh, my point. Uh, but even more conventional conferences, uh, Minds and Money. Uh, uh, some of uh, some of the bigger conferences uh, uh, that aren't necessarily fear-based, uh, you will have the same individuals. Uh, and again, I don't want to mention names. So I think they're pretty obvious to anyone that's been in the market for a while. Uh, still preaching that the uh, end of the world is coming. Uh, you know, they they're precious metals dealers. They make their money in selling uh, precious metals. It's not in their interest to be bearish the gold market. Um, and uh, so. And I'm not saying that they may not be right one day, and you know that the financial system will uh, will collapse. Uh, and but 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 the logic of what they're arguing just doesn't ring to me. So uh, I'll give you an example. You're you're in an uh, you're on a podium and you're speaking to these investors and you're telling them the following: that the U.S. government is going to ban gold ownership. Now, if I was the person sitting in the audience and I believed that comment. I would go buy gold. But the logic of buying gold from a U.S. gold dealer under those circumstances makes no sense to me. Because the first place the government's going to go is they're going to go to the U.S. gold dealers and they're going to get their records and they're going to find out who bought the gold and then they're going to have your name and they're going to know how much gold you bought. So the whole concept of trying to hide this from the government and then buying it from a U.S. gold dealer is counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense to me. If you're going to do that, buy it from a Canadian dealer or buy it from a European dealer. Store your metal outside of the U.S., uh, but don't buy it within the U.S. Again, it, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. Then you have other uh, analysts, you know, whatever, whatever uh, title you want to give these individuals, well-respected, know their business. They know the precious metals business. And they tell people, buy 10% of your assets in gold. And, and they put a period behind that statement and they walk away. There's more to that statement. You know, you, gold is not the end-all, be-all for, for in the world. I mean, gold is a commodity. It has up cycles. It has down cycles. If you are going to hold a percentage of your, of your assets in gold, uh, you need to treat that investment in gold the same way you would treat your Apple stock or your bond portfolio or uh, your real estate portfolio. You don't just buy it and ignore it. Uh, you need to you need to to balance it out, and you need to and to, uh, you need to do a valuation model at least every six months. And I'll tell you why that I think that's important. Uh, if you make the decision that 10% of your portfolio should be in gold, and let's assume in 2008 you were fortunate enough to get in there at $800 before everything hit the fan, and you watch gold run up to $1,900, but way before it ran up to $1,900, it was running up to $300 uh, you know, a year, what you need to do is look at it and say, okay, so now what's my portfolio look like? So right now my 10% that I bought in, uh, for gold at $800 an ounce is now 17% of my portfolio. Well, you need to liquidate 7% of that, and so you're back down to your 10% uh, uh, weighting. Vice versa, had you been caught in the hype in 2011 and bought it at 1925 because everybody and their mother uh, was saying gold was going to $5,000 an ounce, when gold came back down to you know $1,000, $1,200 uh, over the next uh, three years, um, your weighting in gold, I guarantee you, wasn't 10% anymore. It was probably somewhere around 4 or 5%. At that point, you've got to buy 6 or 5% more to top it off to your 10% level. What that will allow you to do, it will allow you to keep that, that insurance position, that 10% in your portfolio, but it will allow you to add to your gold positions as the market drops and liquidate gold positions as the market rises. 
but at the same time holding your 10% position. So you need to treat this as an investment, not just I'm buying gold because the world is going to end and one day I'm going to make money. Uh, because people that have been holding gold since 1980 on that premise, uh, I mean, you're looking at 40 years later and, uh, you know, the world hasn't ended. So you need to treat it more as an investment and, 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 and manage it as opposed to just buying it on the assumption that everything is going to go to, uh, you know, to pot. Excuse the pun. You know, you sit there at one point and hope that the world doesn't go to hell in a handbasket because, you know, I'm not sure how much peace of mind and security will come your way and for how long uh, simply by diversifying your portfolio and owning gold. You know, historically, when societies crumble and collapse, you know, that period afterward is not usually bloodless, pleasant or stable. You know, the suffering is usually brutal long term and on an impossible scale for a single person to prepare for or overcome by themselves. And add to that the fact that, you know, history has proven that wealthy people generally are not kept safe during periods of cataclysmic suffering. You know, if anything, they themselves typically become a target for rage and retaliation. So I find the pitches of this form of ad is not borne out by what the likely situation would be in the event that such dire predictions come to fruition. Well, again, yeah, and I, and we, I get a lot of arguments from individuals that say, well, I'm going to use it as a barter system. Well, I mean, I think if the financial system totally implodes and there is no fiat currency, uh, I would tend to think uh, you're going to be looking for three things. You're going to be looking for food, shelter, and some kind of an energy source. Uh, and you're going to go to someone that potentially has gasoline or potentially has a lodging or potentially has food, and you're going to want to exchange a gold bar for that. And, I mean, the concept of that barter system just doesn't make sense to me. So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a bad argument that gold is going to be necessary for barter when the financial system globally collapses. I mean, I just don't see the logic of that. You know, as a, as a former military service member, I, I'd say your better bet would be to have bullets, water, dry clothes, great footwear, you know, but even all of that can only take you so far. Uh, well, let, let's get away from this uh, apocalyptic uh, um, line of conversation and get more practical. I think most people, if they, they look at things dispassionately, the uh, sky is falling argument is not sufficient enough reason to partition a significant part of your portfolio and put it into precious metals. I would think a, a far greater number of people go to their doctor and get told that they have to curtail this or that, or perhaps they will develop a serious health issue and yet you know, still find it difficult to change their habits and diet. And that's a material reality that is very likely to hit you like a truck if you don't obey your doctor's orders. Whereas the notional future economic threats uh, seem to be by degrees a much more nebulous future consideration. Yet it still works, you know, and to some extent, as people really do take these economic forecasts seriously, and I think it's apparent, you know, these marketing ploys do work to some extent. And that's not to suggest that, you know, I don't like metals or I think that there isn't a real legitimate reason to hold them in your investment portfolio. But looking back, if you bought metal during the Hunt Brothers run up, you likely lost a significant portion of your position after the collapse. And for more than two decades, metals never came close to that peak. And if you bought at the top of the last bull market, you either held your position in a non-performing asset class and saw stocks and other commodities rise, or you sold at a loss, as many did. Now, I think metals face another challenger, with cryptocurrency gaining widespread notoriety and Bitcoin in particular experiencing a rather huge surge in price before its dramatic retreat. But Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies aren't going away. There's enormous media attention on them. It seems new uh, that the technology is still exotic to people. So in this present environment, is actual metal more an establishment play or will it continue to compete and succeed against digital currencies? The answer to that question is really, uh, first of all, gold, you know, as I mentioned a little earlier, I mean, gold is... Uh, is a commodity. It trades on a. It, it, it tends to trade on a on a cyclical basis. So 
So between 2008 and 2011, when you had all of the central banks in the world basically pumping the system full of uh, a fiat currency and bringing interest rates down to zero and gold uh, being a non-interest-bearing uh, asset and, and the fear that it also invoked with the potential collapse of the financial system caused gold to run higher. In 2013, 2014, the Fed started giving uh, pretty strong signals that they were going to um, reverse course on their uh, easy monetary policy, and they started a process. Now, the process generally in the past has gone much quicker, uh, but because of the sensitivity of the Fed to what happened in 2008 through 2011, uh, they took a much slower path. In fact, the Europeans are still on that path and uh, likely not to be uh, come into a more tightening mode in their monetary policy probably until spring 2019. So you have the Fed now in an, uh, in an environment where they're raising rates, uh, which is generally negative for gold. Um, and But what the raising of the rates does and the differential in yields between the U.S. rates and the EU uh, is exp is expanding that differential. So you're having uh, capital flows moving into the dollar and into the U.S. stock market because of the returns that they're seeing there. Stronger U.S. dollars also generally negative for commodity prices because commodities are priced in U.S. dollars. So we're, we're on a, a different paradigm now. The big question is, how, for, how much further does the Fed go? Because once the Fed starts to slow down or starts to signal that they're almost done their tightening, I think at that point or, close, or before that point, because the Forex market is the market that always trades ahead of the curve. Uh, if you want to see where something is likely to go, you watch the foreign exchange market. It, uh, there's $5 trillion a day that goes through that market, so it's, it's, it's much more fluid. But once the Fed starts to slow down their interest rate tightening uh, program, which I believe will end sometime early next year, um, then you have to look at the Europeans now thinking of them themselves starting to tighten. So now the differential in yields will start to narrow. That will move money from the dollar back into the EU currencies. The dollar will start to weaken, and I think gold will start to move higher as a result of that. But you have to look at trends. I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned that between 82 and uh, 2002, that was a 20-year down cycle on gold. Between uh, 2000, uh, between 1992 and 2002, I don't think gold moved more than $60 uh, in a range. Uh, I mean, basically, that's as flat as a market can get. So, you know, we're now eight years into a down cycle on gold. I think it ends... Uh, probably by uh, early spring next year, maybe as early as fall this year. I think we're close to a bottom. But there's one thing to say you're at a bottom or close to a bottom, but it can stay at that bottom for a com considerable period of time. I mean, we could close down at 1180, 1150, where I think the low is going to be if the Fed continues to tighten twice more this year. But then it could stay at 1150, 1180 for an extended period of time, assuming there's no events, i.e. geopolitical issues with North Korea, Iran, uh, or surprises in the market, just normal growth patterns could indicate that gold could be sort of sideways for another, another you know, two, three years before there's another event that creates uh, the next trend higher in the commodity complex. How much do you think of what goes into gold and silver spot prices is organic to the natural demand of the market. Um, and I ask this because, you know, there's a strain of conspiratorial belief that the central banks are manipulating the price of metals to the detriment of investors. You know, and as someone who's traded in this market for a number of years, I'm sure that there's some granularity of truth to the fact that central banks have the type of major purchasing power that even the most wealthy investors don't have. But how much of metal prices that we see on a day-in, day-out basis is affected by the actions of central banks? Well, I mean, if you look at central banks generally, they are absolutely the worst traders in the precious metals market. I mean, bar none, uh, their decisions on timing are, are, are just ridiculously poor. I mean, Britain sold all of its gold reserves in 2002. I mean, literally almost at the bottom of the market. Uh, 
Canada has been selling their gold reserves. I mean, central banks are notoriously bad for deciding when to buy uh, gold for their reserves. Other than Russia and China, which have been consistent buyers of uh, gold for their uh, for their reserves, uh, the primary area where it affects the precious metals market is 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 in fiscal policy. So if you have an aggressive Fed that raises rates aggressively, that's going to move money into the dollar, which is going to be negative uh, for precious metals. And uh, I'm not arguing that there is no conspiracy, but that doesn't mean you can't play in the game. I mean, uh, I hear moans and groans from people saying, well, you know, gold would be at $2,000 an ounce if the Fed wasn't there trying to uh, suppress the price of gold. Um, okay, well, if you think the Fed's doing that and gold was at $1,350 or $1,400, get on their side. Short the gold market. It's not like investors don't have the ability of shorting an ETF or shorting a futures contract. So if you think they're manipulating the game, play the game. Where you hear the conspiracy theorists come out are people that are long gold and refuse to trade gold from the short side, and they feel they're being damaged because the gold price isn't at two or three or four thousand dollars an ounce because it's being held down by the government. For traders, if I honestly believe that the Fed is interested in seeing gold at a thousand dollars an ounce, I know they've got the clout to make it happen. My trade would be to short gold. Why is it you think that the central banks take the positions they take on gold? What is the strategy that has a wealthy economy like Canada sell its gold and a, a wealthy economy like the United Kingdom sell its gold and emerging economies like India and China buying gold? And, and Russia, a country that you know flags behind the UK and Canada ranking, I don't know, 10th or 12th in global GDP, according to the survey, a uh, country that's totally being hit by sanctions right now, they're buying gold. Well, I think, uh, you know, I think the Russians and the Chinese, I think, may have a bigger uh, a, a game plan. Again, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm just speculating here. Uh, but, you know, they may have visions down the road where they see the dollar being replaced as a reserve currency. And for that to happen, they're going to need to have some kind of uh, credible value to back up their currency if they want to step into the ring and become the world's reserve currency. And uh, they believe that that uh, credibility will come with uh, gold reserves. I mean, that's the way you could argue that, um, that, uh, you know, they're using gold basically uh, to mitigate any risks in the dollar-denominated assets that they hold. Um, because the Chinese, uh, I think, own 60, 65% of U.S. T-bills that are issued or, 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 or a U.S. paper that's on the market. And uh, they may be getting concerned, especially now with trade wars, uh, trade war talks getting uh, a, a bit more aggressive. Um, so they're looking at some kind of a hedge against that risk, and uh, that's why they would be buying gold. Would be a, a, a logical conclusion. India has always just been a good gold buyer. I mean, that to them is his uh, uh, historical. Indians have uh, always uh, loved the concept of gold, uh, and uh, so that's just sort of more born into their genetic code uh, in India. You know, as far as Canada and uh, and the Brits go. And some of the other central banks in Europe that have sold their gold, I, I just really think that they're they're just not very smart people. Uh, you know, they they look at gold. Oh, well, gold hasn't done anything for the last 20 years. We might as well sell it and generate some more foreign currency reserves in the form of U.S. dollars in case we need to defend our currency. Uh, so they sell their gold reserves and. It was like the IMF sales back in the 80s. I mean, it was a joke. Uh, all of the traders were set up ahead of the IMF sale. Uh, they shorted the gold market ahead of the IMF sale, and then they went into the auction and bought it back from the central banks that were selling it. I mean, it was the biggest joke on the street. So the big gold traders, uh, it, it was just literally a party every time there was a, another uh, central bank or IMF gold sale. Uh, because they set the market up, shorted it, and then they bought it at the auction at discounted prices. I mean, it was just they were just printing money at the time, the gold dealers. It was just a, an easy way to make money. So the central banks have never had, other than maybe the Russians and the Chinese, that have had a very disciplined approach and always added to their gold reserves. 
uh, are generally just not very smart traders in the gold market, at least from a historical perspective. Uh, every time they're in or out of the market, it's always at the wrong time. You know, if people want to learn about trade wars, uh, they need to first realize that, you know, tr economic warfare has been part and parcel of human civilization for millennia. It seems that one of the things that is really puzzling to me, and I think that this is connected to an unspoken global jockeying for position and power, is the proliferation of counterfeit monetary instruments like paper money and bullion coins. Uh, and a lot of it gets shipped into the United States, especially bullion coins. And this is coming mostly from China. And most of it, sadly, gets through our customs and border enforcement. You know, obviously, many major bullion coin producing mints understand this as a major issue. And the Royal Canadian Mint and the Royal Mint have developed cutting-edge anti-counterfeiting technology to combat the problem. And the United States Mint, on the other hand, seems to be very slow and conservative in their approach to dealing with this, which, in my opinion, leaves one of the world's largest bullion coin programs vulnerable. Do you think the potential lack of confidence the public might have towards bullion coins and their authenticity has an impact on demand for precious metals coins as an investment instrument? Do you think counterfeit bullion coins could negatively impact spot price? Um, yeah, I do think that there are uh, potential issues with counterfeit coins. I mean, many of the larger dealers uh, have uh, have uh, come up with uh, methods, at least from an original purchase perspective, uh, to give uh, clients uh, more comfort uh, that what they're getting uh, are authentic and not counterfeit. Um, every dealer has a different name. Uh, we call ours uh, Mint First. And so a client has the ability of coming in and if they want to buy Maple Leafs or Eagles or Buffaloes or Philharmonics or uh, Kangaroos, uh, whatever bullion coin uh, meets their uh, needs and, and criteria, um, they can get them sourced directly from manufacturers. So these coins come directly from the Mint. They're sealed. Uh, they've never been circulated. Um, so, uh, you know, the client has uh, a, a relative guarantee, well, it is a guarantee that basically these coins have not been fudged with in the secondary market. Now, you pay a premium for those coins, which is over and above what we, we call the secondary market, and the secondary market would be, obviously, coins that have been circulated. Uh, and there it comes down to the reputation and the... Um, I don't want to use the word integrity, but uh, you know, sort of the 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 uh, the expertise of the dealer. Um, now, Kitco has been in business since for 42 years. Now, we have a three-step process on uh, on secondary product. Certain product that we buy on the secondary market, we melt. We just cut and melt, uh, so it never comes. It never goes back into circulation. Other product that we have uh, higher comfort levels with. Um, uh, you know, we have expertise, again, going back 42 years, but we also have a two-step uh, technology process that uh, verifies the authenticity of the product, gold content, fineness, etc. cetera. Uh, and then we stand behind the product we sell to the clients with the reputation of Kitco. Um, so smaller dealers may not be able to do that, and a lot of the counterfeit stuff that seems to happen uh, where it gets back into the market tends to happen at the very, very small coin dealer level or at even the branch level of banks, maybe not so much the coin dealers. Uh, if they've got experience in the market, they know what they're looking at. But a lot of the banks, like Scotia Makata, Royal Bank of Canada, CIBC of Canada, um, and there's a few in the United States, are not only wholesale precious metals dealers, but they also offer precious metals through their branch system. So what happens is you have a client that walks into a branch of a bank. You know, bear in mind some of these banks in Canada have four or five thousand branches. Uh, they walk into a branch and they say, "I have a gold maple leaf here. I'd like to sell to you." Uh, the teller at the branch is absolutely not qualified to tell whether this is a good coin or not a good coin. Um, calls head office uh, and says, "I have a gold maple leaf here from John Doe client. Uh, can I buy it?" And uh, head office gives them a price. They pay the client, credits the client's account. Um, usually you have to be a client of the bank. Uh, and then the gold coin goes into some 
box somewhere, and eventually it'll arrive at head office whenever the next shipment could be a week, two weeks, three weeks, and it goes into head office, and then head office doesn't necessarily also have the expertise, so they just put it in their general inventory, then they sell it out to uh, another branch of their of their of their bank for another client that's come in and wants to buy a gold maple leaf, and then this guy buys the gold maple leaf from the branch and uh, walks into a coin dealer somewhere, and it turns out to be fake. So in that context, uh, it tends to happen more and more often. Uh, So again, I would be circumspect if I were a client buying precious metals. I would want to know source. I would want to know the dealer, and I would want to feel comfortable that what I'm buying from them, they stand behind. Uh, and that's basically all you can do. But again, uh, we've run into very, very, very uh, few counterfeits, uh, and we do a lot of business at Kitco. We've run into a very few amount of counterfeits, uh, and the ones that we have run into have been extremely obvious to anybody that knows what they're doing in the business. You know, I'm heartened to hear your explanation, uh, given your experience. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago on the Coin Week podcast, we had on as a guest uh, former Coin World editor Beth Deicher. And one of the things that she disabused me of in our conversation was my belief that the counterfeiting of bullion coins that is being carried out in China is not being done on an artisanal level, but is instead being done on an industrial scale with multiple factories, multiple conspirators there and here. And it's obvious to anybody who cares about the subject that. One does not have to look far to see these listings of fake bullion coins on internationally known markets, like the uh, Alibaba website, which is uh, owned by a publicly traded corporation. And these listings allow people to buy hundreds, even thousands of coins for a fraction of the price of a real coin. And I find it hard to believe that this could go on for years without anything being done about it. It is, to my mind, an attack on the credibility of the monetary system of the United States, of Canada, and to any country whose legal tender bullion coinage is being copied and counterfeited. That this has been allowed to go on for so long makes me wonder if a multi-pronged approach to combat counterfeits may one day be necessary to include not just the prosecution of these operators, but perhaps also a recall of decades of legacy products so that could be melted and reformed into a secure form. I, I mean, I don't think we're at that point. I mean, uh, I, I think that could possibly be an option down the road. I can't imagine the mints that uh, would be prepared to take that kind of financial hit um, because the dealers wouldn't. Uh, and, I mean, if I were buying uh, gold maples uh, secondary and the RCMs said, look, uh, we'll give you brand new 2018s with security features on them. If they were prepared to do that at, a, at an even swap, uh, then I think the dealers would be all on board to do that. Uh, so it really it would come down to the dynamics of the spread. But, you know, you mentioned Alibaba. Um, I mean, again, it, it really is buyer beware. I mean, if somebody's offering you gold, one-ounce gold coins at $600 and gold's at $1,300, I mean, it should be obvious there's something wrong with that offer. You know, it's, it's along the lines of... Uh, of what happened, uh, you know, with the Nigerian frauds. Now they're coming out of uh, Ghana, uh, you know, and and these are, you know, not unintelligent people that are being scammed. Some of these people are lawyers, doctors, and they're getting approached by, uh, you know, the old scam. I've got, you know, uh, two metric tons of gold kilos I can sell you at a 5% discount to gold. And they believe it. And, uh, you know, they're enticed into sending money and, and getting in the deal. And then they call a dealer, you know, be it Kitco or pick a dealer. And they say, I've got, you know, whatever, a thousand kilos of gold. Um, what would you buy them at? I said, well, if you give me a thousand kilos of gold after we verify the product and everything else, we'll, we'll pay you this. And then they work it out and say, my God, I can make a four or 5% profit on a thousand ounces of gold. And, uh, I mean, nobody, Nobody in their right mind sells four nines gold at a discount to gold. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Uh, trying to explain that to individuals uh, who believe that this is true um, is 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 a is a task sometimes. Uh, but it just doesn't happen in the market. These are all scams. 
Now, let me give you another example. Back in the 70s and 80s, the actual dyes for the British sovereigns were actually stolen. And uh, I forget the, uh, the country. It might have been, I don't want to, it might have been Greece, might have been Turkey. And they started producing sovereigns in that country. Now, they were the original dyes, uh, and the gold content was roughly a quarter of an ounce, which is what a sovereign is. Now, are those counterfeit coins? Well, yes, to my mind, they are. They are unauthorized strikings. They're unauthorized strikings, but it's still a quarter of an ounce of gold. It's still the same purity as a sovereign. The design is identical because you're using the same dyes. Uh, so, I mean, if you were telling me that there was a Chinese manufacturer that was making eagles, gold eagles, and they had one ounce of gold in them, uh, and everything else tested out, and for some reason they were able to make the dyes so that the eagles looked exactly like the eagles that come out of the U.S. Mint. Uh, so their profitability would be whatever the percentage premium over gold that eagles traded at. Um, yeah, you would argue that these are unauthorized gold coins, but it's not really a monetary uh, issue. It's 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 really the credibility of the eagle. And I mean, you're you're still getting an eagle that's 22 karat gold. The ones that are faked, like the Alibaba ones, I mean, they are so obviously fake that that it, it's difficult for uh, for me to believe that a dealer would get uh, fooled by them. Now a bank branch with no expertise, I could see it. But any dealer that's worth his salt should be able to pick these things out easily. Well, I, I would believe that anybody who goes to the effort to buy these so-called bullion coins over the internet or at sites like this, at prices that obviously support the fact that these are not genuine bullion coins issued by their respective governments, that they do this not because they believe they're getting a good deal, but for the purpose of deceiving the unsuspecting into believing that they're being sold real gold and silver coins. And again, this could be a large criminal enterprise, or it could be a situation where you have one individual who's trying to sell five or six things to somebody that they don't know that they might have met over the internet in the hopes that their scam won't be easily discovered, uh, or at least not in time for the buyer to track them down and report them to the authorities. And while professionals would not be easily deceived by an obvious fake, I think it's within our belief that we won't be duped by fakes, that we create a blind spot. So when deceptive fakes come into the marketplace, we may not have the ability to catch them. Uh, and also as far as enforcement, clearly the least effective place to stop these fakes from coming into the market is at our ports, uh, where you have a minuscule portion of all the things that come through uh, inspected. And to your earlier point, if your bank teller in Canada who's authorized to buy and sell coins by their employer, can't tell the difference between a real and a fake, then a customs agent on in an international port who's being overworked and just spot checking things probably is even less equipped to make that call. And they may not even take coins very seriously when you consider that the face value stamped on silver and gold coins is much lower than their actual intrinsic worth. Fair statement, Charles. But again, if I'm buying gold, uh, uh, you know, I'm, you know, Maybe if I buy one ounce, I might be persuaded, uh, to, you know, to go on eBay and buy it from some person that I have no clue as to the the uh, you know the credibility of that individual selling me the gold coin. But if I'm making a gold investment, I'm certainly not going to do that on eBay. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not going to do it on Amazon. Uh, not that Amazon offers uh, gold; they do uh, they do offer some collectibles. I'm going to do it on. With a with a with a dealer that has a reputation in the market that's been around for a while, uh, and that I have a comfort level with, and that stands behind the product that they sell. So I, I mean, again, it's uh, you know the, the the client that's making the investment has to has some responsibility to do some due diligence on uh, on uh, who, who they're dealing with, and and a comfort level that that uh, gives them a comfort level that when they buy something, uh, they're getting the authentic piece. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the dealers offer mint direct product. So you're going to get product that's sealed, that's never been in circulation. Um, so you can protect yourself at least on the initial purchase with that. Let's move off this topic of counterfeits and uh, market levels and metals and talk about the transition from generation to generation. 
Do precious metals investments and the reasons people have gone into this area in the past cross over from generation to generation? Or is this new demographic of investors from Generation X and the millennial generation require a different approach in order to get them plugged in to silver and gold investing? Again, you know, it comes, it comes down to what your motivation is when you're buying. So if we're talking bullion investments, uh, you know, I do see a paradigm shift. Uh, uh, you know, my dad's generation is pretty much gone. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I've been in this business since 73. I'm going to be 60, uh, 67 next year. So, uh, you know, my, my inclination towards buying uh, gold, uh, you know, once you uh, pass the age of 70, tends to diminish quite considerably. Um, so when you look at the millennials, you know, they've never been hurt. Uh, in 2008, 2011, uh, most millennials were still in their early 20s, maybe mid-20s at best, and uh, they didn't have anything at risk. I mean, they didn't have any assets that were affected by the financial meltdown we saw between 2008 and 2011. So all they hear is that they maybe saw their parents go through some strife, and that might impact their their um, their uh, affinity towards gold, but they weren't hurt themselves. I mean, my generation went through a number of financial issues. Uh, 1980, the you know the inflationary issue, the uh, the savings and loan collapse uh, in the late 80s, and you know a variety of other bubbles that that my generation lived through. So in that context, we could correlate what gold did in those times and make an argument that gold, at certain times in various cycles, makes a good investment. It's hard to pitch that to a millennial uh, that hasn't experienced that pain. So a millennial, uh, you've got a sort of, and the millennials are also sort of intrigued with this Bitcoin uh, or any cryptocurrency where, you know, it moves $2,000 in a day or over two days. Uh, so they're more, they're more juiced on something with that kind of volatility. To a millennial, getting them into gold, you've really got to equate gold with the return. And you've got to show them that they can get into gold and they can make money by getting into gold. Uh, and uh, again, millennials since 2011, so that's seven years. Again, most of these these kids have all they've seen since they've been earning money is the gold market on a down cycle. It's gone from 1925, and today it's trading at 1214 dollars. They haven't seen any excitement in the gold market. So to convince these people that gold investment is a good thing is much more difficult. Uh, uh, but the time will come where they where they will appreciate that gold at certain times, and depending on what cycle uh, the financial markets are in, is as viable as an investment as anything else that they might be looking at. Do you think this shift from generation to generation is going to have a, a positive or a negative effect on demand for bullion coins? I'm wondering if the shift from generation to generation is having a negative impact on the demand of bullion coins as major bullion coin producing mints are reporting lower mintages in recent years. And this seems to correlate with the fact that the boomer generation is getting to their sell period when it comes to their precious metals investments. You know, I just think we're in a down cycle in gold, and I think that down cycle started in uh, in, in uh, basically uh, 2012. And uh, uh, you know, bear cycles can run anywhere from seven to 15 years. You know, we're nine, uh, you know, eight years into the down cycle. Uh, but you know, the the other thing that 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 a lot of the dealers that haven't been around, you know, that sort of got into the business in 2008, and it's relatively easy to get into the gold business now as a dealer. Uh, a lot of the wholesalers give you consignments. You basically, uh, you know, got to set up a website, which is, uh, you know, which your kids can do for you in, in their sleep. Um, hopefully get a bank account, figure out how you can process the incoming receivables uh, from your clients, and basically the dealers will give you a consignment so you have no uh, inventory risk. Relatively easy to get into the gold market right now. But but the dealers that got in in 2008, they can't comprehend that this market and the demand cycle has started to dry up. And what they failed to recognize is that between 2008 and 2011, there were thousands and thousands of metric tons of investment product that was dropped onto the North American market. 
by the U.S. Mint, the Canadian Mint, the British Royal Mint, the Austrian Mint, uh, the Perth Mint, just, just tons and tons of, of gold coins, gold bars. Now, but most of that stuff is still in the hands of investors. All right. And, and what, what's happening and, and why you're seeing mint sales going down is a lot of these investors, because they're getting jaundiced on, on the action and the gold price, are starting to throw in the towel. Just saying, you know, forget it, man. I'm just going to generate some some cash here uh, because I want to buy my house. My the real estate in my neighborhood's going up 10% a year. Uh, stock market's going up 10% a year. Uh, interest rates are now you can get you know 3% on a 10-year bond. And I'm sitting on this gold. I've had enough, and they liquidate. Now you've got all of this secondary supply coming into the dealers, so the dealers don't need to go and buy mint supply. So dealers are well-stocked with inventory. They're able to offer that inventory at better pricing than uh, getting mint direct. Um, and that's basically generating the supply for the demand that exists in the market. And just to give you an example, I mean, if you go to the U.S. Mint, and they are virtually the only mint that still does this. The Canadian Mint, the British Royal Mint, when you buy a Britannia or you buy a uh, gold maple leaf, there's a unit cost that the distributors pay. Uh, just off the top, on a maple leaf, it's somewhere around $21. Uh, for the Britannia, it's in that range, $20 to $22. Now, the U.S. Mint is the only mint that still has it on a percentage basis. So you, you buy a U.S. Eagle from the U.S. Mint. They're at 3%. It doesn't matter if you're Scotia Makata or whether you're a smaller dealer that has access to the U.S. Mint, you pay 3%. And that 3% is local San Francisco. So at current gold market, you're paying $36 a coin. Now you've got to transport it to your fulfillment centers, which are generally in New York. Some of them are, you might have a West Coast fulfillment center, but let's assume New York. So you're going to get this coin at 36 bucks from the Mint. Add another buck for shipping. Now you've got them delivered in New York at 37 now you want to make a margin. This is the wholesaler now. So now the wholesaler sells it to the intermediate dealers, maybe at a half a percent markup. So that's another six. So an intermediate dealer is acquiring gold eagles at $42. On the secondary market, the bids on eagles are basically flat, spot gold. Some, some dealers are paying a $5 premium. So now I've got a 1,000 gold eagles coming in at spot. Eagles are the perfect example. They're a 22-carat coin. They're a harder gold content than a 4.9's maple leaf, so they don't tend to get scratched. Uh, and who cares whether you're buying a 2015 gold eagle or a 2018 gold eagle, assuming you, you have confidence in the dealer. But now I've got these 2016 or 2017 gold eagles at spot. I can go and retail these things out at 30 bucks which is $7 below what I'd have to pay the mint to get 2018 eagles. So clients are coming in, they're buying my backdated eagles at $20 cheaper than they can get 2018 eagles. So nobody's going to the mint to replenish 2018 eagles because we don't need to. So that's also accounting for some of the drop in volumes on current year productions from the U.S. and Canadian mint. So in other words... There is sufficient amount of legacy product in the bloodstream of the market to satisfy current demand? There has been, yes. Now, But as the market has now dropped uh, down into the low 1200s and silver being south of $16 on the big figure and possibly maybe getting into the 14s, uh, I'm doubtful it will, but if it does, uh, you're getting clients now that are buying into this weakness at these levels. So the secondary uh, volumes in the market are starting to dry up. If gold breaks 1200 and doesn't bounce back over 1200 in very quick fashion, then people will liquidate in the 1100s as well. They're thinking we're close to a bottom, so people are starting to bottom fish here. So we're not getting as much secondary product in, and therefore the premiums you're seeing on eagles and maple leaves have started to creep higher in the market because demand is now picking up at these levels. If it sustains itself, the secondary supply is going to be gone relatively quickly, and then all that's going to be left is current year product, and then people are going to be paying $40, $45 again for an eagle. But while it exists right now, you can pick up gold eagles 
uh, I think we're selling them at I don't know, $27 or something retail. And they are exactly the same as a 2018. They're 22 karat gold coins. They look exactly the same. But you're saving yourself $20, $25 on entry cost. Well, Peter, uh, I'll uh, end our conversation with this question, and I, I do appreciate your time. Uh, in your opinion, is there a sweet spot for spot price where you have maximum demand, a maximum number of participants in the market, and beyond this level, you begin to see a decrease in participation, and the market becomes less desirable to the general public because of the affordability of the metals? Or is the inverse true, where if metals are considered too affordable, fewer people will have an interest in holding on to them for the long term? One of the reasons I ask this question is because even when gold was a few hundred dollars an ounce, it was out of the price range of many people. And I suspect that this problem becomes even more acute as it went past 1000 and up towards 2000 an ounce. And I think you could see this with the proliferation of cash for gold shops. You know, once we were reaching the peak, a lot of people were at the point where they couldn't justify holding on to old jewelry and coins and things like that. Man, that's a tough question. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think back. In uh, 2011, when gold was approaching 1900, I mean, we were just jammed. We were doing uh, probably three, four billion dollars a year uh, in, in retail precious metals at, at, at those higher prices. Um, albeit, uh, you know, at $1,900, they weren't buying 10 ounces of gold, they were buying one ounce of gold. Uh, so I mean, again, it depends on on on. I mean, if your question is yet yeah, at higher prices, will the volumes uh, per individual drop? Uh, yeah, I would say yes. I mean, I have no quantitative data to, to be able to prove that. Uh, and again, it's motivation. Why are you buying? And uh, um, again, most investors don't think on a global basis either. I mean, uh, I mean, is it important for you to have international diversification? If it is, buying a gold eagle is a bad investment. Uh, in Canada, gold eagles, because they're 22 carat, same as the Krugerrand, are taxable. So dealers don't pay high for eagles in Canada. In Hong Kong, where we have an office, you can't give an eagle away because Chinese don't want to buy 22 carat gold. They want to buy four nines gold. So the Americans came up with the buffalo. Uh, hasn't really taken off as well as they had hoped. Uh, sort of to compete with the gold maple leaf. Um, so again, I mean, those are esoteric. You know, if you're an American and you're sitting somewhere and wherever, and and you want to buy ten ounces of gold, I'm sure you're not thinking, well, I might need this ten ounces of gold if I ever leave the country. But again, if that is part of your your thought process, uh, you should be looking at international liquidity. What I'm concerned about. Only because this gold market has come down from $1,900 and really not generated a, 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 a consistent rally. Now, we've had some some really good rallies from the lows. And in uh, 2015, uh, gold was at uh, 1040 It rallied all the way up almost to uh, 13, uh, 1375 Happened again last year. So there have been chances in this market to, you know, to generate 10 15% returns. If you're a trader, my concern is for people that are holding gold as long-term investors for the purposes of someday looking for this, this big number, the longer this market sort of goes sideways, as you get strength in this market, what you'll find is retail sells in, will be selling into strength, which is not, which is abnormal from a retail mentality. Since I've been in the business from 74 all the way to 2011, uh, even a little past that, retail investors tend to buy on strength and sell on weakness. Now they're starting to sell into strength. They're just looking to get out. So you might be holding silver at $19, and now you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the last three years to get $19. The first time it goes to $19, you would think, you might want to analyze it and say, well, we're back at 19, maybe this breaks out. But what will happen is at 19, you'll sell because you, you broke even. 
And that tends to be the mentality of retail investors that, that are just now, they, they got into the market because they figured this was a, a good investment, I'm going to make a lot of money of it, and now they found that it's not that great of an investment. Uh, and now what they're looking at is just basically to get out at a break-even. So my concern is all of this inventory that's been accumulated from 08 to 11 in, this, in the North American market will start to feed itself back into the market as prices rise. And so that's going to create some, some sort of buffers uh, for the price to explode onto the upside. Once we do get it up through certain levels, then a whole new paradigm will come in and people will jump on the bandwagon again. But I think there'll be some pain on the way up. It's not going to be a straight line up the way it was between 2008 and 2011, in my opinion. And uh, even as gold climbs in price, you know, the marketing rights itself, don't you wish you would have bought gold when it was 1200 an ounce? And you just go from there. Well, Peter, uh, thank you so much for joining us and imparting some of your wisdom on this fascinating aspect of the market. That was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Remember, you can download all 105 episodes of the Coin Week podcast for free from the iTunes store. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting. <laughs>